Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Philippians 2. And let me just introduce um, where we're up to now. And if you're new with us, what's actually happening? Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, started this church in Philippi, a Roman province, about 10 years before he wrote this letter. And it seems like the church has done well over these last 10 years. But at this point when he's writing, two major things are happening in the life of the church that were soaking up the thinking of the church. The first was this. There were two women in the church who had fallen out. They were clearly significant in the church because it was enough for Paul to write and address the issue in a public letter. So there were some tensions and some factions being caused in the church. And then outside of the church... They were in, in getting increasing persecution. They were a Roman province, so they were in uh, the centre of attention for anyone who would be against uh, allegiance to Caesar and all that was Rome. And these Christians, who were then considered just a sect of the Jews, who were themselves not regarded by the Romans, they were this small church. They were kind of bullseye for persecution. So there are these difficulties in the church, difficulties outside of the church. And so Paul writes this letter wanting to bring healing to the church and strength and courage to them as they face all that's happening around them. And so we get really, I think, what is the kind of the central thrust and purpose of the letter in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, church, that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel so not divided but one spirit and secondly and not frightened in anything by your opponents so may you be unified may you be one and may you be courageous and the thing with Paul is he writes what is now a profound letter that we're still talking about 2,000 years later did he ever imagine that I'm not sure that someone in London would still be going through this with a fine tooth comb to, to unpack what he was writing But for Paul, it was not enough for him just to write a letter as deep and profound and theological and helpful as it is. For Paul, he wanted to do more. He wanted to send people who would represent the kind of lifestyle that would bring healing, that would bring oneness, that would bring courage. He wanted to bring examples of what this kind of lifestyle would look like. So when we get to this passage in chapter 2, verse 19 in Philippians, what we have is Paul giving an example of two men who are living lives worthy of the gospel. Men who are living this out and will show and demonstrate and be able to impart this kind of lifestyle to the church. Not just words, but actually a lived example. So this is what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they will seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, 
and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is an amazing moment. And it's really instructive for us, I think, today at our particular moment in history, because Paul writing this profound letter says it's not enough just to have words on a page. It's not just to have this instruction booklet as to how to do life. I need other Christians to be in the room with you to impart something. He does something very similar in the letter to Romans, where he writes 16 chapters of some of the most dense and important literature that has ever been written. And at the very beginning of this letter, having written and just like this is not just like a thank you note that you do between coffee and an email. This would have taken money, a team preparation. It would have taken weeks probably to put this thing together and then dangerous travel to get this letter to Rome. But this is what he says at the very beginning of Romans chapter one. He says that is um, so verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine what is he saying i'm going to take all this effort and time and money to get this letter to you but actually what i really want to do is be in the room with you so something spiritual might be imparted to each other we might be encouraged Uh, who would put their hands up and say this last year that you have spiritually waned over the last 12 months. Anyone want to be honest with me? Because otherwise I'm lonely. Yeah, so like my my experience over the last 12 months of being by myself is that my spiritual energies have slowly been depleted because we are embodied beings, each of us as Christians, with the Holy Spirit in us, and we are designed to be in the room with each other. Not just because we're on a rotor or because I've got something to do, but even being in the room, seeing Mandy and her faith and her willingness and the desire to be here actually is imparting something to my soul in terms of encouragement that there are other Christians out there following this Jesus. I'm not the only one. So Paul says, I long to be with you. You need these examples. We need to be in the room together. And for us, obviously, we're at this kind of juncture moment between online life and real life. And we're kind of in this gray limbo land. Like we don't, I find it very confusing at the moment. Kind of, you know, you can do stuff, but it still feels slightly limited. And there's all sorts of things going on. What Paul would say, wherever you can, be in the room with another believer. Because there, there is spiritual encouragement. Something will be imparted that you cannot get over YouTube. You cannot walk with Jesus in all his fullness, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and solely do it with podcasts and YouTube. We are designed to be embodied beings. YouTube, you get the best of the person, whatever the best of me might be on camera. But you get the polished version, don't you? You get my best bits. In the room together, you get authenticity. You get the best bits and the bad bits. You get the nice bits and the annoying bits. The bits that actually help you grow as a person. And we need that. As we're in the room together, actually what we can do is impart encouragement and and actually build a relationship with other people, not just Jesus. And as we're going to see, it's totally crucial. 
So Paul gives us these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are examples to us, who if he were alive today, he would send them to us to spend some time in our community groups on a Sunday, go for lunch, so that we could learn what it is to follow Jesus. And what I want to do today is simply just look at Timothy and look at Epaphrodites and see how we can learn from them. Paul says at the end of this letter, in uh, the end of this chapter in verse 29, he says, honour such men. What I want to do is just simply like lift them up as, Timothy, as Paul has done, lift them up before us and just see how we can learn from their example. Because these are men who have lived lives worthy. Let me just say this, this word worthy in uh, verse 27, it, it can be a bit of a confusing word, but it's, it's the same word that gets used for comparing things. So my mum, back in the day, she had a pair of scales, like old school scales with actual physical weights, like one kilogram, no, one gram, two grams, 10 grams, 100 grams, you know, that kind of thing. And on one side, you had the, the weights here. And on the other side, you put your like flour or whatever it was. I only watched this happen. I never actually did it. But they were, it was fun. so you got these, these scales and you put this, the, whatever you want, you want 100 grams of flour, so you put it on that side and then you need flour on this side that is going to be comparable if you need 100 grams obviously so that it can balance the scales out like this that's what worthy is for Paul here this word is this sense of comparing Paul says in Romans 8 18 that I don't compare the same word I don't worthy I don't count the cost of I don't compare my current sufferings with the glory that's going to be revealed he's saying I'm putting this suffering this life in term in the balance with the glory that's to come and actually there's no compare the glory to come is far heavier far better far longer than what I'm going through right now and so when Paul says, let your lives be worthy of the gospel, what he's saying is this, there is a gospel and the gospel is Jesus Christ. And this gospel is weighty and beautiful and glorious. It's a, it's a gospel of a man who has sacrificed himself for us. He spells it out in chapter two. He says this, and this is in the scales. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Note the beauty of this man, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross and therefore God has highly exalted him this Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess continually that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this is our gospel and he says this is in the scales boom Glory, infinite weight in this person, Jesus. And what it's saying is your life has to be put in the scales and your life has to be found comparable to this man, Jesus Christ. So where you see beauty in this man, there must be beauty in us. Where there's glory in this man, there is to be glory in us. Where there's self-sacrifice in this man, may there be self-sacrifice in us so that the balance of the scales may slowly come and find ourselves comparable to this man Jesus Christ I think that's a tall order it's a tall order I'm preaching better than I'm living today if you get what I mean but this is the call that our lives would have weight added to it significance and meaning and and glory 
So that if Paul were to assess our lives, I've got the gospel of Jesus and I've got your life, Trinity Church London, I can see that there's a comparableness. There's a worthy like life with you. And this is what these two men do. So I'm praying, Paul says another place, that we grow one degree of glory to another, that some weight, good weight, don't want any lockdown weight, good weight, will be added to us over the next few moments. So firstly, Timothy. Let's look at this man, and I'm going to call him Timothy the Selfless. Because what do we find out about this man, Timothy? Paul says this, I, in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And this isn't Paul just being like moping, asking for sympathy. There's only one, it's Timothy. He's saying, no, this man lives such an exemplary life that he is head and shoulders above the rest in how he looks after other people. This is totally unique. He says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. So this was a gifted man, a pastor, a Bible teacher, someone who cared for the flock of Jesus Christ. And he says, there's not many like him who actually genuinely cares. And the, and the tricky thing with being selfless and looking after other people in church is that very often you can do godly things without a godly attitude. You can do Christian churchy things without a Christian attitude. He's already said in, in, in chapter one that there are some who preach gospel, preach the gospel, but not for Christ, but for selfish gain, for selfish ambition. So he's already made it clear that you can preach the good news of Jesus Christ and actually all the time be doing it for yourself. It's a danger anywhere with anything that we do, but especially it's tricky in church because it it looks like they're talking about Jesus, they're doing churchy things. It must be fine, but it can be self-centered. So it's tricky. So we've got to kind of understand what is it in Timothy that made this so special? Let me just suggest four things. The first thing is this. Timothy didn't separate serving Jesus from serving people. Because it's interesting here, because he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he'll be asking you questions about your life, what's going on in your life if you were here right now. He says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So you put these two verses together and you see, well, he's concerned for your welfare and for the interests of Jesus. So what is the interest of Jesus? It's your welfare. So is it possible for me to worship Jesus, say I'm devoted to Jesus, I love Jesus, and not be interested in the welfare of the church or other Christians? No. Because if I am genuinely passionate for Jesus, I will be passionate about other things that he is passionate for, and that's the welfare and the well-being of other people. Does that make sense? And it's tricky. I mean, I've been reflecting on this, this, like this last week, thinking about me and because I do a fairly visible like thing here in church and obviously it's super dangerous if you do visible things because like well I'm like number one talking about this but like I could be the one doing it right now and I think I mean I started preaching when I was 17 years old why they took a risk on me I I have no idea And, and I look back and reflect on those early years when I was preaching and teaching the bible and I think was that was that about helping the church or did I just enjoy preaching (laughs) and I think honestly there was a lot of it it's just like I just quite enjoyed preaching I love the Bible I certainly love Jesus but 
the congregation. It was kind of like a by the by. I kind of felt like I had this thing to polish up in private and then put on display. And I knew that it was kind of often about me as I've reflected now because I would be very concerned about what people thought of me. Was it good? Did people say good things? Did people say anything at all? Because actually it was kind of a lot about me. And the danger of saying like, I've now sorted it and I'm so altruistic and all about you and Jesus. My heart will always be mixed, I'm sure. But I know something has happened in my heart because I am more relaxed about preaching because actually it comes to this frame of just, I want to help other people now. It's not about me kind of performing something for half an hour, then getting feedback. But it can happen in any, in any sphere. So can you separate the idea of loving Jesus from serving his people? For Timothy, they came together. That's one element of it. Second is this. People who are wanting to, to serve other people actually don't compare themselves to other people. It is something that our world is prone to do. And Paul makes this clear because in chapter 2, verse um, 3, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So the flip side of caring for other people is actually being concerned about yourself and your own ambitions. And how does that manifest itself? Normally, it's comparing like for like. How is my life to their life? I wish I had their life. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their jobs or their gifts. Or I'm, you're always looking around comparing and you're either feeling good because you're feeling, actually, I think I'm getting ahead here. Or you're feeling crushed because you see someone else and they're doing better than you. It's a sign that actually you're not there for other people's welfare. You're actually in a quiet state of trying to get ahead yourself. Those who are actually after other people and wanting other people's welfare seem disarmingly happy and carefree. Because they're actually just thinking about other people. How are they doing? And it's true, because you know some of the happiest days, probably, when you haven't really thought about yourself. You ever had one of those days? And you get to the end of the day and you're like, I don't think I've really thought about myself too much today. And they're often the happiest days. I don't know if anyone's like following with me here. Like, yeah, I was just doing my thing involved in other people's lives, doing my work. I wasn't concerned about how am I doing in the mix here. That's the second thing, we don't compare. The third thing is this. How do you know that you're wanting to serve other people? It's an interesting thing here is I think you are happy to get advice and be cared for by older men and women in your life. It's an interesting thing here because he says in verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. This man, Timothy the selfless, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in a gospel. In the gospel. Not like, hey, we're colleagues and we've got our own patch. You do this and you do that. We're going to designate areas and we're going to cover this area. No, as a son with a father. This is family relationship. And the, the sins of young people is often this. I wish old people would get off my back. They don't understand today's culture. They don't understand me. They don't know what I'm good at. They don't know, they, they are cramping my style. I wish they would let me do my thing. Because it's about me. I want to, and some of that's okay. We want to stretch our wings and we want to be our own person, etc. But if we never invite advice and feedback for those who are older in the Lord into our lives, it's probably a symptom of the fact that we're actually really about something in us, not about family. Because families work together with all the warts and all. 
And it means a younger person might feel like I'm walking a bit slower than I would like to. I'm not quite doing things like I would really like to, but I'm not here for my own self-expression. I'm here to build a family and to serve other people. Does that make sense? It's hard for if you're, you're a young person. Let me just say this if you're a, an older person, and I, I, I risk offending people here, and if you're at home. But let me just say this, if you're an older person, we need you as a church. Because over the last three months, our church has got younger. And the danger is, if you're older, you think, well, uh, I'm not sure if this is really a church for me because these, this seems to be a young church now. But we're not trying to build a young church. We're trying to be the family of God. And actually, young people are an invitation because if we're honest, we need help. <laughs> and just your questions and interest and walking across the room to us, it actually means so much more than we could put into words. So we need sons with fathers and daughters with mothers if we're going to care for each other. Does that make sense? Fourthly, let me say this, and this just might sound so simple, but I need to say it. If you know you are interested in other people and you actually just ask other people questions about their life. I say this because I'm amazed even at my own ability to go through so many conversations in a day and they're all fun and they're happy and they're friendly and we're kind of getting on and we're bantering about how good Chelsea are and how blue London is at the moment and all of this stuff and yet go through multiple conversations without actually asking a question around how are you doing? Does that make sense? How are you doing? Or how is your mum? How is your dad? What's going on at work? Actually stopping to ask those questions. And you might say, well, I don't want to like kill the atmosphere because the banter's really good at the moment. Our church, let me be real with us for a moment, our church is filled with pain. I think many of us have walked into this space right now with quiet pains and aches and weights and relational tensions and worries and concerns. You're probably at home with the same things. And if we never stop to actually ask each other questions about how are you doing, we'll never get to help each other. We'll never get to unearth some of the reality. Because if we're going to be family, not just a service that feels happy and then go home, if we're going to be family, we need to go there. I would rather, let me just say this, we only got one service, so we've got time. <laughs> I would rather we had a family that was real and authentic, that shared, that was a little bit messier, but actually people went away helped and changed and growing and strengthened and more able to face the day and more able to face their work than something that looked slick and snazzy on a Sunday and you actually helped no one. So let's pursue that and pursue each other. Ask questions. We could all get very serious after church today. Like, no, no, no. How are you? I don't know. Let's, let's just see. <laughs> so there's Timothy the selfless. May there be more Timothys and Timothetas arising. Well, I don't know what the feminine of Timothy is. And then secondly, there's Epaphroditus. We're going to close with Epaphroditus. I'm going to call him Epaphroditus, the risk taker. 
It's hard to put his story together here, but let me just try. This is what commentators have tried to do with Epaphroditus. He was probably a key part of the church. One of the elders of the church, we don't know, but he was probably a key part of the church because probably it seems what's happened is when the church took up this financial gift to send to Paul in Rome, it's quite some journey. It's a dangerous journey. They were looking around. They took this special offering like we did, and this was a significant amount of money. And if you're going to send a man with a significant amount of money across the Roman Empire, you need to trust this guy. You don't, you don't want to be asking like a week later, do you know where Epaphroditus is? <laughs> You're like, I think I saw him on a yacht, like drinking pina coladas. And like, you don't want that story to go around. You need a man who like, if you're going to give him money, it's going to get where it's supposed to go. And so this was a trustworthy man in the church. He was respected. And they gave him this money to take to Paul. And this journey was perilous. One, he had finance with him. So he was at risk of robbery. He was a Christian going into the heartland of the Roman Empire. This is Frodo going to Mordor. This is dark and dangerous and perilous. And he is saying, I'm willing to risk myself and associate myself with Paul, who is on trial at risk of death from the Roman Empire. I'm willing to associate myself and be with him. He was risking arrest. He was risking his own death. And what happens is we find out he actually gets seriously sick. So the finance does get to Paul. He says, thank you. Epaphroditus gets severely sick. We don't know with what, but obviously pre-antibiotics and all of this stuff, this was life-threatening to him. And then he wants to send Epaphras back with this letter back to the Philippians. And Paul commends this man, Epaphroditus, and he says this, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour, and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. And this is the key here, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's not Paul having, you know, throwing shade on the offering. He's saying like, there was more in your personal presence that was needed and Epaphroditus provided that. And what he's saying here is that Epaphroditus risked This is a sense of gambling. He said, I'm going to roll the dice on my life, knowing that for the sake of Christ, whether I live or die, the goal is Christ and his glory being known. And I'm willing to gamble my life for that cause. He says, I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to put my health, my life, arrest in the balance if it means serving the cause of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing because this this word that comes out now, this kind of risking type word, actually get caught up in the early church. And because there were plagues that went around and we're now much more used to them, obviously, today, this idea of virus is spreading. But in the first, second, third century, plague sweeping through the empire was a real risk and happened on a semi-regular, you get what I mean, basis. And what happened is the church started... um, inviting people to join these groups of what were literally called riskers or gamblers paralambanoi these men and women who would come together and they would gather and say i'm willing to go and serve and care for the sick knowing that if i went into a home of a dead body and buried them to give them undignified life i might die in the process This is like the SAS of church deacons, like men and women who would say, I'm willing to risk. I'll put my hand up and say, no, I'll risk and care for those who have been uh, found ill or those who have died. 
So in 252, there was another plague that swept through Carthage, and the bishop of the time, Bishop Cyprian, he called for another of these um, ministries, if you will. Like me standing up saying, who would like to be part of the riskers? or the gamblers who would like to say I'm willing to go and care for those who are seriously sick even if it means you're going to die and they gathered these men and women who literally went and cared for people and some of them died Rodney Stark who's a church historian says that this was one of the key moments there were two key plagues that happened in the Roman Empire and these were the two of the key moments that turned the tide of Christianity from going from a minority religion to actually taking hold in the Roman Empire because people saw how the Christians cared for those outside of their own and that the pagan priests couldn't keep up and love the, the, the society like the Christians could and actually Christians and their families actually had a better survival rate and suddenly these Christians were honoured because they stayed when the pagan priests left the cities and suddenly the church grew and grew and grew why? because of these riskers like Epaphroditus and we've had it I mean to why we rightly honour the NHS staff who have risked themselves going into hospitals time and time again those on front line who have gone time and time again to risk their own health for the sake of the society and for us if we are going to be a church that displays the glory of God we are going to need more and more Epaphroditus's Epaphroditus's who will be known as risk takers and it may not be with your physical health some of you have been part of this gang, these riskers, in this last special offering. You've said, actually, I'm going to take a risk because I don't know how I'm going to get finance for that month, but I'm going to give to the work of Christ. Some of you, your risking is literally just walking across the room to introduce yourself and just say, hi, you knew around here, we've not met, my name's XYZ. I'm guessing it's not XYZ, it's, you know, give your proper name, but... You know, that might be your or your risk might be just introducing yourself as a Christian in your workplace. We are going to need, let me say this, more and more men and women who will be riskers with themselves and their reputations when it comes to Christian lifestyle and Christian ethics. As the society moves increasingly away, what, what has been known as Christian ethics in the Bible, we are going to need men and women who could say, I actually believe something different. Not in an aggressive way, not in an awkward way, but just saying, actually, I believe that there is another way that our society can work and sexual ethics can work because I believe in Jesus. To do that in your staff room is going to require some risk taking. <laughs> So how do you find yourself in the balance? If you're like me, you probably take a gulp and you think, looking at Jesus, okay, I need more of Jesus in my life. Which is why we're not just left to emulate, we're left to follow in the power of the Holy Spirit and dive our souls deep down into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as we get to know this Jesus, the weight, the glory, the magnitude, the power of the Holy Spirit falls into our soul and we begin to live lives worthy of the gospel. So as we close, we're going to just throw our soul into Jesus Christ and his spirit. And we're just going to enter into him and just ask him for this help that we might be Timothy's who are selfless and Epaphroditus's who are risk takers. Amen. Amen. Can I invite you to stand and the band come back up?